You're listening to the Birth Matters Podcast, episode 64. We never planned to have an only. We thought we'd have at least two, but it's so funny that that morning I was like, I am not doing that again. And then I ended up not doing that again. It took a couple of years to make that decision to not do that again, but I actually did choose not to do that again. And (laughs) it was overwhelming. I think because my mom had died before that, it triggered an upsurge of grief for me again. I had lived seven years without her and grief is not linear. It's kind of up and down and sometimes it's very unpredictable of when it's going to be down. And I was pretty overwhelmed with grief when Molly was born, just missing my mom so much. It's the reality that there's other women who don't have moms around when they become moms. I struggled. I don't know if I had postpartum depression, like, but I definitely had a strong upsurge of grief for a long time. Welcome to the Birth Matters Show. I'm your host, Lisa Graves-Taylor, founder of Birth Matters NYC Childbirth Education and Labor Support. This show is here to lessen your overwhelm on the journey into parenthood by equipping and encouraging you with current best evidence info and soulful interviews with parents and birth pros. Please keep in mind the information on this show is not intended as medical advice or to diagnose or treat any medical conditions. Please know that we welcome your feedback on the show. Let us know what you like, what you don't like, and what you'd like to hear or learn in future episodes. Reach out to us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter at BirthMattersNYC, or you can email us at podcast at birthmattersnyc.com. Today, Sarah and Steve share their daughter Molly's birth story as a special way to celebrate and honor her on her 13th birthday, which is the day this story is airing. And I'm about to cry because our daughters are really good friends and they were born in the same month. Can't believe how time flies when you become a parent. How can they be teens already? (laughs) Anyway, this is a story of an unmedicated vaginal birth at home with a home birth midwife in Brooklyn. Interesting, perhaps, to note that Molly has recently become interested in becoming a midwife and has listened to every single episode of this podcast. Sarah shares how giving birth and becoming a mother stirred up a new wave of grief over the loss of her mother, which was about seven years before she became a mother. This sharing was also a special way to commemorate the 20th anniversary of losing her mother as it was recorded the day after it. She'll mention a couple of things that happened during pregnancy that seemed like messages sent from her mother. As a professional in literacy, as well as an anti-racist educator, Sarah provides a number of great book recommendations, including the recommendation to expose little ones to diversity and representation in books that you read to them as early as possible. So without further ado, I want to say happy birthday, Molly. This one's for you. Hi, Sarah and Steve. So good to see you. Thanks for having us. Hello. These are friends of mine. They are the parents of one of my daughter's best friends, Molly. And we were so sad when they left New York a few years ago to go to Chicago. We miss them a lot, but I'm so happy to reconnect in this way. They're going to tell Molly's birth story today. So would you guys start by just introducing yourselves, get us acquainted with you a little bit? How old is Molly? How long ago did you give birth? What do you do for a living? If you'd like to share that, any of that good stuff. Oh, thanks. So 
Molly's almost 13. So this ah. is uh, a little while ago, but I was born and raised in Chicago and then lived in New York for 11 years. And Molly was born in Brooklyn. And then we moved back to Chicago when she was a baby. And then we moved back to New York for two more years. And then we moved back to Chicago again. But I teach teachers. I have a PhD in education from NYU. And I taught at NYU and Loyola Roosevelt. And now I'm at UIC. And I, um, I'm a freelance educational consultant. And I also tutor kids. I'm a reading specialist. So I, with the pandemic and virtual, I've actually had quite a lot of clients in New York, which has been kind of fun. Oh, fun. Be able to assess and tutor kids over the internet. So yeah, I teach teachers. I do a lot of anti-bias, anti-racism trainings as well. And so post-George Floyd, I was also in very high demand. The virtual has made it more accessible to reach people all over the country. So even though we're in Chicago, I was in New York for 13 years and part of my heart is definitely still there. <laughs> mm. Yeah, I'm, I work as a freelance event designer, designing environments for stores and corporate events. And uh, do all that from the table in the back of the house. And so. if you hear his accent, he's not from Chicago or New York. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm British. I'm from Wales. Small, small countryside village. Yeah. Now. And didn't you used to work in England in theater? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. No, training was as a theater set and costume designer. And worked doing that in London for many years until I came to the, the U.S. Fellow theater lover. <laughs> Great. And our daughters were born in the same month. They're both going to become teens in March. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and we're aiming to air this on Molly's birthday, which is really exciting. I'm excited that that'll be a little birthday gift for her. Yeah, she loves this podcast because she's thinking about maybe becoming a midwife when she's older. And that just makes my heart sing. I was so thrilled when you guys told me that she was listening to the podcast. I'm like, yes, we need to reach not just girls, but everybody at a younger age with this information so that we can sit with it and, and just be more well-informed going into this healthy physiological process. So yay. And I know those plans can change. I, I don't expect her to become a midwife, but I love that she is having that passion now because she's really just getting ahead of the game. That's so wonderful. And also regarding your work, Sarah, I'll just want to let listeners know that I will post your website, your information on the show notes page, just in case they are looking for a tutor or would like to do more anti-racism work. I love that work that you do deeply admire that. And that's so needed right now. So thank you for all of that work that you're doing. All right. Well, why don't we go ahead and jump in? Can you give us a little background if you'd like to tell us anything about conception and or pregnancy, how that went, how you made the birth choices you did, all that good stuff? Yeah. So we were married about four years and thinking about moving back to Chicago already from New York and thinking we should have a baby while I still have really good health insurance at NYU. <laughs> I'm not even joking. No, um, fair enough. That makes sense. Because we were going to move to Chicago without jobs necessarily lined up and, and a newborn. So we decided to conceive, to start trying, thinking that maybe we'd have a baby in May. And we got pregnant the very first month that we tried. So we had a baby in March. <laughs> Um, wow. I had a home pregnancy test 
that I took in the morning when Steve was still asleep. And I remember basically like sticking the positive thing in his face <laughs> being like, Steve, we're pregnant. <laughs> oh my God, it's positive. Because I didn't actually think it would be positive right away. And then there was a crow outside the window in Brooklyn. I don't remember ever hearing a crow before. And my mom had died seven years before that. And we have one audio recording of her voice. And she said, if she was able to communicate with us from the afterlife, it would be through the crows. And so the morning this crow outside my window in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn was like cawing its head off. I was like, mom? And I was kind of creeped out, but it was also really cool. It was like really cool. So I, you know, there's no way like to really know, but that's kind of a fun part of the birth story. We had to move while I was pregnant, which was not fun. So I don't think we started deciding about hospital or home birth like immediately, but it was pretty soon after. And we read a really good book. Steve wasn't convinced about a home birth. I was a home birth and my brother was a home birth. And I had an aunt who was a home birth midwife. So home birth was definitely not unfamiliar to me. And I always thought it was kind of cool that I was born at home because it was kind of different because not everybody's born at home. So I have kind of a cool birth story about the home birth midwife and doctor actually almost not being able to get to our house because there's like three feet of snow. And um, we read The Baby Catcher. So I highly, highly recommend. Actually, I asked Steve to read it also, The Baby Catcher, which is a series of short stories, short vignettes. Every chapter is a birth story. And it's a midwife who wrote it. It's so good. And so now our daughter's read it already. It's a really good one. And it helps Steve be like, okay, maybe home birth is a possibility. I guess I'd always figured you get married, get pregnant, and have a baby. And I hadn't really thought about the actual birth and how that happens. Sure. The baby just appears after nine months. <laughs> um, I wasn't thinking about it. And then Sarah came up with the home birth idea. And even though I come from the land of home birth, it may be the first time I'd actually heard about it. And, you know, obviously, I'm just like terrified about what's involved and what can happen. So something like reading that book, The the Baby Catcher, it explains a series of of home birth stories, some of which don't go well, some of which happen in in the backseat of a car. (laughs) And it just made me realize that, you know, you you don't need the hospital and it can happen anywhere. Even if you're doing it in the hospital, it can still happen in the car on the way to the hospital. (laughs) Right. What's the difference? And uh, (laughs) that book and then, you know, other videos and speaking to midwives kind of convinced me. And then we did a hospital tour to do the birthing center. But when I found out that if the birthing center is full, like those two or three rooms at whatever hospital that was. Mount Sinai West, I bet it was. Yeah. If they're occupied, then you're in a regular room. I'm kind of hospital averse and I'm really averse to like beeping noises. (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Like like it was going to be triggering for me and not very relaxing the fluorescent lighting. Like I just didn't, it's just, you know, it's very clean, but it's kind of antiseptic. I just wanted to be at home. And I liked the idea of not having to transfer home after birth. You're already at home. And I remember Steve asked about car seats because we didn't have a car. While we're at the hospital, they announced that you can't check out with your newborn unless you have a car seat. And we don't have a car. So my immediate thought was, do we have to buy a car seat? How on earth do you leave the hospital with your kid if you don't have a car seat? So I got really kind of caught up on that idea. 
someone explained, well, your wife takes the taxi and you take the subway, which was kind of what I had in mind anyway. But just this idea you couldn't check out without a car seat kind of confused me for a while. I will just chime in to mention that a student of mine in birth class last weekend actually brought this topic up. They were like, do we really have to get a car seat? And I, I just mentioned that there is a car service that exclusively caters to families. And so they have all the current safe, different sizes and types of car seats if they did give birth in the hospital, which they're planning to. And Uber and Lyft and those different car services also have that option at a premium to pay extra for that. But that's interesting. It makes sense that you would be like, I don't want to have to buy a car seat. What are you talking about? It's so funny how I feel like we were totally not thinking about how I would feel after the birth thinking like I would take the subway. I mean, like I would walk up and down stairs <laughs> and I would take the train like everybody else every day. Like oh, I was no. not, I, but I will say we had a home birth. We did not buy a car seat. And when we had to take her for the early checkup with the pediatrician, I took the bus. We took the bus in Brooklyn. I didn't take the train because I didn't want to do the stairs, but I did take the bus. So she was on public transportation, I think when she was like seven days old or something, I was not terrified of germs and stuff. I just was like, no, we're just going to take the train and the bus like everybody else. I wasn't really thinking like, keep her insulated in a car where she's not exposed. Now it's different during a pandemic, obviously. Sure. Even more reason to have a home birth. That's what I would say. (laughs) (laughs) So I think the book, the hospital tour, and then the midwives we met. And I I feel like we only met two and we just totally fell in love with Kristen Leonard. She's just like an amazing human being, like just like a lovely, a lovely person. We just clicked. We talked a lot about travel, international travel, and I think even like some social justice stuff. Like we just loved her. So it just was a pretty no brainer. Like it was a pretty like, okay, I was born at home. I don't want to transfer home afterwards. I don't want to have to buy a car seat let's just do it at home. And then Steve started researching the water birth, like to have a pool. So we rented the pool and the other prenatal stuff. You know, my biggest fear with the home birth was what if there's an emergency? And then we're kind of stranded in our apartment south of Brooklyn. We did speak to two midwives and both of them, I think they recognized how anxious I was. So just for the moment when they were talking about that, their attention was on me, whereas normally it would be on Sarah or both of us. But this time they kind of concentrated on me. And, you know, they basically explained that as midwives, they're trained to keep people alive. So, A, they're not going to let you do the home birth if there's any risk of any complication that they can right. see. If there's anything untoward, they won't do it. You'll be in the hospital. You'll be safe. If you're fortunate enough to go the whole way, then if an emergency happened during the birth, They're both trained to get the emergency services to you and keep you alive until they get there. They even made the comment, you know, you could have an emergency in a ward and then someone else could have an emergency in south of Brooklyn and the person in the house could be in the emergency room quicker. By the time the ambulance gets to you and picks you up, you can be in the emergency ward quicker than someone who's already in the hospital just based Mm -hmm. on, you know, mechanics of moving people around. So that was really kind of reassuring to me. and. Then once I realized we can do it at home without all the extra fuss, and and we knew it was probably just going to be the two of us because our families were far away, Mm -hmm. then it was a no-brainer. 
And we did a birth class. We did a crash course birth class with my aunt, who's a midwife, Mary Summers in Chicago. And she's just absolutely amazing. So we were home visiting or in town for a wedding or something. And she did like a one day private with us. And the thing I remember the most actually was her asking us what was like the largest physical challenge we'd ever overcome, we'd ever accomplished. And we're both cyclists. And that's how we met actually was through our, our long distance cycling and some racing. And I had ridden 500 miles in six days. I had done that twice. And it was from Minneapolis to Chicago. Yeah, we, it was a chair, you know, a fundraising event for organizations that support people with HIV and AIDS. That was in 98, 99. I did those. And I did the Boston to New York one also, which is shorter. But she was describing labor. You know, labor is work. Like the word labor means work. And it, it's hard. It is hard. She wasn't sugarcoating that it's hard, but it's short term. And I remember reading, one of my friends bought me the Ina May Gadskin book and just really learning about the, like the monkey brain. I remember a lot of it's psychological. A lot of it's like saying to yourself over and over, I can do this. For me as a woman, it's like, my body is made to do this. My body is made to give birth. Women have been given birth for millennia without drugs, without hospitals. Like our bodies are made to do this. So were there any other ways that you prepared? You've already shared a lot, but I just wanted to see if there's anything more before you actually go into the birth story itself. I think that's all I remember is a lot of books, Crash Course with Mary, the meetings with Kristen, her midwife, amazing midwife. Oh, I did join a mom group. Oh no, I did two other things. I joined a birth support group for women who are all due in March. It was through a shop that I don't know if it's still there in Brooklyn, but you could like go in and basically like sign up with your name and email. It was neat because we met, I can't remember if we met every month during our pregnancy, but then it was kind of cool to have this little group of like new friends. There were probably maybe eight or 10 of us who were all due in March, but I was due at the end of the month. So like they all started having their babies and then maybe, I don't know if we were meeting weekly at that point. But I remember, I think I went to one of the meetings and one or two of the moms both were there with their newborns and I was still pregnant. Might have even been past my due date. And they were like, go ahead and hold our baby. Like apparently that can possibly help bring on labor because it triggers hormones and stuff. So that was really sweet. And I remember taking her, I think that was our first outing with Molly, except for the pediatrician was we went to this mom meetup. And I would definitely recommend that because we had no family in the area, either of us. And I was 29. So I wasn't a baby, but none of my friends in New York had had babies yet. Like none of my college friends. I was the first one was in Connecticut and one was in Texas who had had babies before me. But having that support was really important. And the other thing that was recommended, I think it was in one of the books I read, was to go to a La Leche League meeting before you give birth. And so I did that also in Brooklyn. So I had already met the local La Leche League leaders and a couple women in the group who were nursing. I was very committed to nursing. I was a thousand percent committed that I was going to make sure that that was going to work. That was going to work well. And so then it was nice when I did have questions in those early days and weeks when I wasn't even up for leaving the house, it was still cold. You know, it was the end of March, early April. It was, it was the end of winter, you know, spring was coming, but it was cold. And, and I was not up for a lot of walking. I was in some pain that I'll talk about later, but yeah, having that connection to the Leche League was also really, really valuable. I would highly, highly recommend that. 
I'm so glad you're saying that because when I teach about lactation, I always say, hey, go now. And I mean, right now they're all virtual, super easy. You just go on a Zoom call and you're getting ahead of the game and you're finding community because like you're saying, that is so important to connect to other expectant parents who are in a similar time of life. And those are free meetings for anyone not familiar with La Leche League. It's mother to mother peer support with a meeting facilitator who is often either training to become a lactation consultant or already is one. So you're getting free support from often a professional as well as fellow parents. So thanks for sharing that. Great. Well, do you want to go ahead and start your birth story? And that can be in the last few weeks of your pregnancy or wherever you want to start. Um, I was going to add another pre-birth thing. Sure, Steve. About having a midwife. She actually came to our house for every checkup while Sarah was pregnant. So we didn't have to go out, you know, to a, a clinic or anything. So I realized we were, you know, fortunate to be able to do that. And so over the, over the few months that she came to our house, you know, she became a friend and it was always to sit down on our sofa and do the examination or whatever and catch up. And also knew that, you know, we then knew that when we'd go into labor, that it would be this friend who was coming over. And we weren't going to be suddenly, you know, in the hands of people we hadn't seen before. Mm -hmm. So I think that really helped as well. Mm -hmm. That was nice. That's often a big selling point for people as they're choosing their birthplace is, you mean I don't have to go anywhere for my prenatal visits? That is amazing. Now, yeah. I just want to clarify that some home birth midwives do that for the whole time. Some of them have you come to them for some of the appointments and then they'll come to you for some of the appointments. It, so there's various setups with that, but that's one question you can ask for those of you who are listening who might interview home birth midwives, make your wish list of things that matter to you and then ask them if that's their model of care. And I'll add one more thing too. We didn't do any prenatal testing because Steve's brother had Down syndrome. And so we knew we were not going to abort if the baby had Downs. So we were kind of like, why would we test? We don't need to know because it doesn't really matter. Like we're going to love this baby regardless. And so even if I had a slightly higher chance of having a baby with Downs because of the bloodline, there was no other Downs in his past history. So we don't actually think it was the, like the genetic kind, but we didn't do, it was just nice to not have that pressure of like, you have to X, Y, Z. Like I only had one well, I had two ultrasounds. I had one to confirm my pregnancy really early with a, a midwife at a clinic that I didn't like at all. And my aunt was like, oh yeah, we call them medwives, like very medical, very, very mm -hmm. medical. Yeah. Not like, not like a home birthy type midwife. And I didn't like it. It was very kind of cold and like formal and depersonalized. And it just didn't fit my personality type. And then we did have the 20 week to find out the gender. Cause that was really important to me and so happy to have a girl. Like we both really wanted a girl and Molly knows this and I'm going to say this and people might judge me, but we joked that if we had a boy, we'd give him up for adoption, which is not true, which is totally not true, <laughs> but that's how much we wanted a girl. And it when, probably would have meant more babies. When they said we were having a girl, I just cried of relief. I was so happy. I was so happy we were going to be having girl. Um, and not for like girly, girly stuff or like clothing choices. It wasn't that it's more like trauma from past situations with men and boys, but that's another story for another day. 
So our birth story. Okay. So I think I was due on March 24th and I was already working at home and not really doing that much working. I had a really great boss in like the week or two leading up to it. I wasn't commuting to my preschools in the Bronx and Brooklyn or to NYU anymore. She was allowing me to work from home and I was getting a lot of naps in and reading a lot of books, which was really nice. (laughs) But I was getting a little impatient when the due date passed because I was just like ready already, like to not be pregnant anymore. I really wasn't sleeping well. I remember waking up, you know, five, six, seven times in the middle of the night to go to the bathroom or just waking up. And later I thought, well, that prepared me for newborn stage. People who have an easy pregnancy and don't wake up in the middle of the night probably have more of a shock when when baby never sleeps. But on the day, it was a Friday and it was a nice day. It was sunny. And I actually felt like walking. I walked to the Bay Ridge Public Library and read children's books because that's part of my career as an early childhood teacher educator. And I remember I was leaving the library and this book fell off the shelf, like behind me and landed on the floor, like a loud, and it kind of startled me. And I turned around and it was this big, thick chapter book in the children's book section. I don't know how it could have fallen off the shelf. It didn't seem like there was any gravity, like I couldn't understand the physics of how it could have possibly fallen off the shelf. And it startled me. So I I bent down and I picked it up and it was called Fearless Girls, Wise Women and Beloved Sisters, Heroines in Folktales from Around the World. And I thought, wow, that sounds like a cool book. And again, I was like, mom? Because my mom had died seven years before and I couldn't figure out how that book fell off the shelf and why that book. Mm -hmm. So that's just one more of those like cool, unexplainable chills moment. (laughs) I got chills when you shared the crow story and I got chills just now. Oh, wow. When I was walking home from the library, it was really pretty. It was really nice out. And I remember somebody on the street saying, when are you due? And I was like four days ago. And they're like, well, good luck. And then that night I went into labor. So I remember, I just remember we had homemade pizza and Oreo cookies, double stuff Oreos. cooking, you know something's going on. <laughs> I don't cook. Steve does like 100% of the cooking. He had an art class. And then I remember him calling and being like, can I have a drink with my art teacher? Because it's the last one. I was kind of like, yeah, okay. I mean, I think I made dinner already, which I don't usually do. Yeah, that's how I knew. The, the walk to and from the library in Brooklyn, the walking and the making food. That was my like nesting. What do they call it when you get like a burst of energy? Mm-hmm, the nesting. Yeah, that was that. I didn't know that it was, but that was that. And we got in bed that night and I didn't feel well. I felt kind of, it wasn't crampy. I don't think it had started yet. I just felt kind of not nauseous. I don't know. I just didn't feel well. I didn't feel well, like lying down. And so I remember saying like, can we go sit on the couch? Can we go, I don't know, watch a movie. Even though it was late, it was probably like 11, 30 PM or something. And I was tired. Don't forget, we'd already planned when you went into labor, there was a certain movie we were going to watch. That's right. So we, had, we, we sat and watched that. Tell them what it is. There's a movie by an artist called Andy Goldsworthy, who basically creates using you no know, leaves and stone walls and ice and things like that. Nature. Yes, yeah, so nature stuff. It's an hour or so long. And we, 
we had just planned that we'd watch that during labor because it would keep our mind off everything and pass the time. So we sat down and started it. Yeah. And I think contractions started and Steve started writing them down. You know, I didn't kind of know exactly what they were like immediately, but it was like, I think this is it because my water did not break immediately. We put the movie on. He started writing them down. And then I'm not sure if he started filling up the birth pool because I knew that you, you shouldn't get in too early. I remembered that. But we labored alone for a couple of hours before we even called our midwife because it was like the middle of the night. And we were kind of keeping an eye. She had told us, I don't know, let her know when they were five minutes apart or whatever, whatever the measurement was that we were supposed to let her know. And I remember sitting in a, like a birth rocking chair that we had bought for nursing and my water broke. So I was sitting on a towel. I don't remember if there was a plastic bag or anything under that, but I was sitting in this rocking chair and all of a sudden there was some liquid and I was like, oh, and it was you know, warm. And I was kind of like, I think, I think my water. Think my water just broke. Whoa. Okay. Well, there's that. Check that off the list of like things that typically happen. And then I'm pretty sure I vomited after that. <laughs> I was like, oh, there's those double stuffed Oreos and pizza. That was gross. But Steve was very generous to clean it up. And I think we finally called her because I really wanted to get in the pool and I kind of wanted to know if it was okay to get in the pool and give her a heads up. And I think. I think we did. And she said, you know, call me again when whatever the next measurement, maybe the first call was 10 minutes apart. It was kind of a long time ago. Yeah. That was like two in the morning. Yeah. So we were already a little bit nervous about waking her up even. Yeah. But, uh, and then it wasn't that much long after, but I remember calling her again, maybe around four, four, four thirty, and they were closer much and she said, "Okay, I'll take a shower and I'll be right there." And she didn't live that far, and it, there wasn't going to be a lot of traffic at four in the morning, straight down Fourth Avenue. But I, I remember I was I was actually on the toilet and I was in a lot of pain, and I definitely I was like, I think I feel like I have to poo, but I can't poo. And she was like, "Oh my God, you're in transition. I'm coming now. Like I won't take a shower. I'll be right there." Her reaction was like, "The baby's coming." And I don't remember if she used the word transition. I had like forgotten that from the birth class because I was just so in the the contraction. Not in your thinking brain, sure. But what I remember was thinking that every contraction was like a hug that was in one of the books. That like every contraction was hugging the baby and one hug closer to actually meeting the baby. It was hard. I mean, it definitely hurt. I'm not going to lie. But I knew that it was short-lived. I just knew that it wasn't going to go on for six days that intensely. My labor was pretty short. So I think the contractions were very strong. And I think I don't actually have a very high tolerance for pain either. I think I'm incredibly sensitive. I know that I'm incredibly sensitive. And in that transition moment, though, I definitely panicked in my head and was like, I can't do this. I can't. Who did I think that I was that I could have a home birth? Like I need to go to the hospital and have drugs. And that is such a sign of transition. (laughs) I freaked out because I was like, this is, this is too hard. I'm not strong enough. My mom was clearly stronger than me. She had two home births and her third birth was a breech baby, natural, no drugs. But But first my sister was folded in half. So my mom was my heroine. And I just, in that moment was like, I can't do this. 
but I think she was already on her way. And by the time she got there, I remember being in the pool. I was wearing like a bathing suit top. I was still partially covered. I was very like body self-conscious. I'll be honest about that. That might help some people. And do you want to tell her what you remember about Kristen laying everything out? Because I didn't even see this, but it was dark. I think we had a couple of candles maybe and like a lamp. I think we might've had some soft music on. It was very lovely to be at home. It was absolutely lovely to not have to move. And I was in the pool and Kristen got there and Steve let her in and then he can tell that part. Before Steve tells that part, just a quick word from our sponsor. We want to be sure you know that Birth Matters has been teaching interactive, live, virtual group and private classes through the pandemic. And the cool thing is you can participate from anywhere as long as your time zone is compatible with New York Eastern time. Group childbirth classes are the best way to build your confidence and prep for an amazing birth and entry into parenthood. It's also incredibly valuable to connect with other expectant parents to build your very important support system. You'll spend quality time with your labor support partner from the comfort of your home on Zoom as you prepare for not only birth, but also for your best possible postpartum recovery, as well as early parenting with classes on lactation and newborn care techniques. We offer all-in-one comprehensive series as well as one-day topical classes. To learn more or to grab your spot, visit birthmattersnyc.com. And now Steve gets to share about when the midwife arrived. Yeah, so practical matters, again, (laughs) putting a pool in your first floor apartment in Brooklyn is pretty scary as well. But there's one guy who was doing birth pool rentals and he basically explained it away and there was some insurance involvement. (laughs) But yeah, we had a pool full of water in our apartment that night. Sarah was in and out of it, I think, Mm -hmm. for a few times, just trying to get comfortable. And I'll also say, you know, for the birth, you watch all the videos about different ways of doing it, orgasmic birth and hypnobirth, and all the videos are very idealized and wonderful with the men and the women rocking together and ooing and ahhing. And I'd just like to say that there was none of that. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, don't touch me. I mean, I just was like, no, I just. No, so I wasn't the guy in the pool <laughs> hugging her with this loving embrace. He was like, get away! <laughs> But um, it was more like, you know, a gentle hand on the back and scoop some water off the floor or something. But the midwife came in and, you know, she had three or four big holdalls with her and some oxygen tanks. I was like, oh, okay. And uh, Sarah was in the pool and they had a couple of first checkups. And I know at one point, Kristen was behind Sarah doing an exam. I was at the front end of Sarah. So Kristen was like looking over Sarah's back at me. And she mouthed something. She didn't say it out loud. She mouthed something to me. And my brain said, it's not there. No. So I was convinced, like, oh, we're far too early. Not something was wrong, but, you know, maybe we're like a day early. Like, it's not there. So I kind of panicked. And Kristen's looking at me with a puzzled look. (laughs) And I'm like puzzled. And eventually she actually just told Sarah that the baby's head was right there. And she could touch it if she wanted. She could reach down. Oh, yeah. The head was right there. We were ready to go. Yeah. So I didn't know that until right now. I don't think you've ever told me that. What I remember Steve telling me is that with all the equipment is that, I don't know if it was like a hockey bag size, but like she like laid everything out. And I never even saw it because it was behind me. I never even knew that that was there. So he told me later. 
Yeah, I was in and out of the pool a little bit. I didn't, I wasn't into walking. I didn't have a birth ball because I hadn't done like a real proper birth class. I probably should have, but I did a crash course with my aunt who was amazing. And I kind of thought that was enough. Like I just thought, you know, women have been giving birth for millions of years. Like my body's going to know what to do. My aunt offered to fly out to be there, but I just thought that was kind of risky given you never know when labor is going to be like, mm-hmm. you know, for her to book a flight or whatever. So it was just us and Kristen. It was just the three of us. And I remember pushing, I think I felt really like ineffective, like inefficient. I mean, I just didn't feel like I was good at it. Like I didn't know how I was definitely anxious about pooping also. Like I was not okay with that. I just was like really uncomfortable with that idea that that could happen. That kind of freaked me out, but I did push obviously eventually well enough. I think it was about an hour and a half or I don't really know of pushing. I feel like, and then the head came out and I think I probably did touch the head when she was still inside. I think I kind of remember that. And then I pushed and the head came out and Molly's underwater. So I was on hands and knees and her head came out and I could see her head between my legs. And I was like, like, oh my God, that's the weirdest thing ever. (laughs) I just see the baby's head between your legs because I was on hands and knees. And I was like, she's okay, right? Like, cause she's not breathing yet. Cause she's, you know, she hadn't had any oxygen yet. Kristen's like, yeah, no, she's fine. She's fine. You need one more big push and you'll get the, you know, basically get the body out. I was like, oh my God, like that was, <laughs> and I screamed like somebody was murdering me. Like I, it was, and I felt bad for the tenants upstairs. Luckily they were training to be doctors. <laughs> they were a young couple. I don't think they were going to be labor and delivery doctors, but they were like in their residencies. I was like, wow, I might've just woken them up at whatever, at five in the morning or whatever. And it was a bloody murder scream, but it helped. And then, yeah. And then one more enormous push and she slid out and Kristen said, pick up your baby. So I was the first one to touch Molly and I was kind of startled. Like I was, I think I was in shock almost that I had just done that. And like, I was so tired because I labored all night and I need to sleep. Like I am a sleeper. I, I really, really like to sleep more than most people. I think I need sleep. So I was kind of not in a great place at 5.30 or something in the morning when Molly was finally born. And I was so surprised. I wasn't prepared for Kristen to say, pick up your baby. So I was like, wait, what? Oh, because like, here's Molly, like in the water. <laughs> Just like, I mean, it was only like a second, I'm sure, but it felt a very long time in my head. So I picked her up and I put her to my breast and we had already known that we didn't want to have the cord cut right away. And so I just kind of looked at her and like, tried to get her to latch on right away. Like just put my breasts in her mouth. <laughs> like I didn't know what to do. I mean, I just was like, Oh my God, I just had a baby. And so we all just took a couple minutes. I don't know how many, maybe 10, 15. I'm not really sure. And I remember Kristen saying something like, do you want to check the sex or do you want to check if it's a girl? So then I looked and I was like, oh yeah, no, she's a girl. Like, cause I didn't, I just was like, well, they already, I already knew she was going to be a girl from the ultrasound. So I thought that was really funny that she was like, do you want to check? And then I was like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. No, she's a girl. And Kristen goes, yeah, she's too pretty to be a boy. (laughs) And we had picked Molly Elizabeth. Elizabeth was my mom's name and is my middle name. We had some back and forth on names and we looked through some name books and I think Elizabeth was a no-brainer that that would be the middle name, but we weren't sure on a first name 
there weren't any other family names. We had very different opinions. Actually, Steve, do you want to share some of the Welsh names that you thought of? Because I think they're really <laughs> funny. Because <laughs> I was like, uh, no, but go ahead and share some. Irrelevant. No, um, please, it's funny. No, please do share. <laughs> I would love it if you remember. Oh, Bloodweb? Uh-huh. And I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. Bloodweb. And I was like, blood, blood, what? No. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't care for either of them. <laughs> I Bronwyn, is that what you said? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know a Bronwyn who's a teenager. Yeah. So it, we had decided on Molly though, and but we hadn't told anybody. That was definitely a surprise. And I think we thought we wanted to try it out once she was born to see if it fit to see if it felt right. Like we could change it if it didn't seem right, but, but it did, it seemed very fitting. And so I think we told Kristen first of anybody that we were going to call her Molly. And then, and then at some point Kristen was like, well, we should probably cut the cord now. Steve, do you want to do it? Did you put no, we did the cord first. Okay. Yeah. You cut the cord, right? Apparently. No, Steve cut the cord, which I, I the cord. which I thought was, I didn't want to cut the cord, but Steve cut the cord, which I thought was very cool. And then Steve got to hold Molly. Do you remember at what point Kristen had you get out of the tub? No, I stayed in the tub. So I stayed in the tub for a long time. He cut the cord. I remember because I had been on hands and knees. So then I was like sitting back on my feet, like on my haunches, kind of holding her. It was like very hard to like get my feet out from under me to actually sit on my bottom. But no, I stayed in the pool for a while. I birthed the placenta in the pool. So Steve cut the cord and then Steve was able to hold Molly. And then Kristen was like, so now you need, now you need to birth the placenta. And I was kind of like, what? Like I was so out of it. Like again, and I had this crash course births class. Like I'd like forgotten that that was like something that I had to do. And I was like, you're kidding. Right. I mean, I just was like, no more. Right. Like who's thinking about that? Like I did the good part. You have, you mean I have to push something else out of that hole that really hurts right now. (laughs) I was like, not having the placenta thing, but obviously did. And I think she showed it to me and we put it in a Tupperware. We put it in the Tupperware we ended up putting it in the freezer. I think we didn't know what to do Just with it. Case. I've learned more later about like drying it and encapsulating it. And I wish I had done that, but we did keep it and put it in the freezer. And then I think it was time for me to get out. So I think Steve took a shower first. So Steve gave Molly back to me and he took a shower because he had been in the birth pool. He had swim trunks on and, and it was bloody. So he took a shower while I stayed in the pool with Molly. And then I gave Molly to Steve and then I took a shower and got clean pajamas on or whatever to basically get back in bed and go to sleep. And Kristen did whatever she did. We didn't wipe the vernix off. I remember feeling kind of strongly about that. We were just going to let that absorb into her skin over time. And there were no eye drops. I mean, I just loved, I didn't have to argue with anybody about why, I wanted the placenta, why I wanted to keep that. It was just awesome. And Kristen weighed her. So we have a cool picture of Molly like hanging in one of those like cloth. Little stork you know, pouches. <laughs> yeah, it's just really cool. And she was great. She was, mm-hmm. big. She was um, nine pounds, eight ounces. Yeah, so she was big. Yeah. And I called her my bagel baby because I was quite sick during my pregnancy. I pretty much dry heaved every day for nine months. Like I never vomited once. I never once vomited, but every single morning I would dry heave once or twice. 
Mm. And bagels were about the only thing that I felt like I could eat that didn't make me feel sick. So I think twice a week, I think, or once a week, I would have a bagel on my commute to the Bronx or Brooklyn where I was coaching preschool teachers. So she was, she was chunky and then she lost weight and we'll get into the nursing in a minute, but yeah, she was a big baby, but she was very healthy. And Kristen put her first diaper on and then Kristen left. And I think she was like, I'll see you tomorrow. And I think Steve and I kind of looked at each other like, oh my God, now what? Like we have a baby and we're alone and I'm really tired. So we all went to sleep like in our queen bed with Molly on the bed with us. She had one of those little tiny baby beds. It's basically flat mattress with like a little wall around it, like a three inch wall around the head. So I think we have a great picture of maybe it's Steve and Molly in bed because I think I took it later, but it was sunny. So we had the blinds closed and I had an eye patch on and we just all went to sleep. And then I think I woke up, I don't know, three or four hours later and was like, oh, like, oh my God, there's a baby in the bed next to me. <laughs> and like, should I feed it or something? Like, am I supposed to like do something now? Because she wasn't crying for hunger. Yeah, nursing was kind of awkward in the beginning. I'd never done that before and didn't feel very, you know, good at it and didn't know what it was supposed to feel like. But, you know, in those first couple of days, she's she's peeing and pooing. So I was like, well, clearly there's liquid. I mean, she's not she's not not eating as I was waiting for my milk to come in. Come in. Yeah, I'm gonna jump in because I know you missed something you wanted to talk about. Okay. But just to to go back to uh, what Sarah said, that moment when Sarah's recovering in the bed after the birth, and yeah. I'm filling in paperwork with with the midwife and doing all that kind of stuff, and then she left. She let herself out and said, well, I'll see you tomorrow. And it, for both of us, it really was like, oh, where's the manual? You know, like, what do we do? But the midwife said, go to sleep. And we retired. And I think we made a couple of quick phone calls and passed out. Oh, yeah. And then you wake up and all of a sudden that, that baby that is suddenly there. And it just felt very different, but also kind of right that, Again, I know I know we were fortunate to do it at home and, and lucky the way things worked out, but you suddenly feel very helpless and lost because you just got this new living thing. Both Sarah and Molly were glowing. Sarah suddenly looked you know, very much at peace and very happy. She doesn't remember that, but she did. <laughs> but um, that was really cool. But I did know that Sarah wanted to talk about the after effects birth. And I'm glad Steve reminded me of the phone calls. We definitely called his parents in the UK. It was their first grandchild and their only grandchild, actually, that they'll ever have had. But my father-in-law said, uh, and I hope he's going to listen to this. He said, so when's the next one? <laughs> and I was like, are you crazy? I am not doing that again. Like, I don't remember exactly, but I just was like, you're out of your bloody mind that you just asked me that when I just gave birth like I can't <laughs> you <Yeah>. too soon <laughs> and I we never planned to have an only we thought we'd have at least two I have two siblings Steve has one when we, you know when we were married and, and newly you know dating even we definitely thought we'd at least have two but 
it's so funny that that morning I was like, I am not doing that again. And then I ended up not doing that again. It took a couple of years to make that decision to not do that again, but I actually did choose not to do that again. And (laughs) it was, it was, it was overwhelming. I think because my mom had died before that, it triggered an upsurge of grief for me again, that, you know, I had lived already like seven years without her and grief is not linear. It's kind of up and down. And sometimes it's very unpredictable of when it's going to be down. You can just be triggered by like somebody in the grocery store or, you know, just like a random smell or some a, a sight of something. And birth, I think I probably anticipated it was going to be difficult. She had bought me the red tent by Anita Diamant as my last, mm-hmm. the, the, one of the last gifts she ever gave me for Christmas. Mm-hmm. She died in January of 2001. So I reread that when I was pregnant with Molly, because I loved that, like the intergenerational women birth, you know, the red tent during menstruation. I just loved that. And I had actually been literally reading it when she died. I was on an airplane from New York to Chicago when she passed. So I was literally reading it when she took her last breath. So I reread that when I was pregnant and, and I was pretty overwhelmed with grief when Molly was born, just missing my mom so much. Sorry. (laughs) You don't need to apologize. But I just think it's the reality that there's other women who don't have moms around when they become moms. There's a really good book I read when my mom died called Motherless Daughters by Hope Edelman. She also read another book called Motherless Mothers. So I think I read that also when I was pregnant. The author, her mom died, I think maybe she was 13 or so. She's a journalist and she kind of reviewed all the literature on grief, including mother-daughter, the unique. It's different than father, daughter, or spouse, or, you know, it's just every, everyone's grief is always unique based on the relationship they had and the age and stage and the circumstances around the death. But she was interested in mother, daughter, particularly. And, and then she did her own research surveying women who had lost their mothers at different ages and for different reasons. And it's just an amazing book. So I highly recommend it to anybody who, whose mom has passed. So then motherless mothers, she wrote when she became a mom, cause she had two girls. And how becoming a mother changes your relationship with your mother, even post-death. So even though you can't talk to your mother about anything that anybody who has a mother who's alive might ask their mom about, yeah, it's just part of like the grief journey. So I struggled. I don't know if I had postpartum depression. Like I don't really know, like clinically how that's diagnosed, but I definitely had a strong upsurge of grief for a long time. And it was actually just the 20th anniversary of her death yesterday, the day that we're recording this on January 21st, 2001. And Molly said to me something like, somehow we were talking about, I think it was in the movie that we were watching, Anna Green Gables, which I watched with my mom as a kid. Something about the happiest day of my life came up in the plot line, I feel like, for a wedding or something. And I was like, yeah, I don't know if I have a happiest day. I'm not sure what I would say is like the happiest day. And she's like, well, what about the day I was born? And I was like, well, I'm going to be honest. I was happy. I was relieved 
that she was healthy and happy to not be pregnant and happy to be a mom, but I was also really depressed. It was not her fault. I don't want her to feel bad about that, but it was pretty overwhelming. And I think that's also normal to a degree that I think women should know that it's okay if you're not like in the blissed out state. It was painful for quite a long time. So I didn't know that it wasn't normal for it to hurt that much for so much longer after in the days and weeks following. But I think, I don't know if it was about a week later, maybe Kristen came back. I think she definitely came back the next day. And I think about a week later, she checked me and she's like, oh no, that's not normal. So I developed something called granulation tissue, which is basically kind of like scar tissue with nerve endings in it in my vagina. So it was extremely painful. It was extremely painful. I just, you know, urinating and just living. It was just like extreme. I could really basically not walk. So we had to go into to see an OB to have it removed. And that meant a shot, you know, an anesthetic. And, and we did take the train. We did not take a taxi. I remember getting off the subway and in the village. And then I ended up growing more. My body produced more and I had to go back again. So I was in a lot of pain for weeks, I would say. Nursing was also very painful, I felt. And I don't think there was anything wrong with her latch. I'm just very, very sensitive. I definitely had some dry, cracked nipples. And then I was so sleep deprived. And I already mentioned how I don't do very well when I'm sleep deprived. So Molly like hardly ever slept. I, I mean, she obviously slept, but she didn't sleep in chunks of time. And I didn't do very well with like two hour, two hour naps throughout the night. And she seemed to be awake a lot at night and sleep more during the day, which also is pretty common. So I was often saying to Steve, like, you get a good night's sleep because I'm going to need your help in the morning. So I would stay up most of the night. She would fall asleep in my arms, but if I tried to put her anywhere, she would cry a lot. We didn't even have a crib. Yeah, we just had that thing on the bed. We we decided not to do a crib because we were moving to Chicago very soon after that. So we didn't want to buy lots of stuff. And we had a little bouncy seat kind of thing that I would try to put her in and she would just cry and cry. It's like she wasn't happy if she wasn't touching us. Or really close to us. So, and that's very normal for newborns. They're used to being inside of you and they just thrive on our touch. You know, it's helping their neurological development, but it can be so challenging for us as parents because we didn't expect that, right? And she didn't like to be swaddled. It was like things that worked for other people's babies weren't working for her. And yeah, I struggled a lot with the sleep deprivation. But obviously, I was happy she was born and happy, very happy she was healthy. And She really was beautiful. And I was so enamored, like for months, just, I can't believe I grew her in my body. Like, no offense to Steve, but like I did most of the work. (laughs) I still haven't heard the end of that. (laughs) I mean, it's miraculous. And I I was at a shop in Chicago some months later that had a, a breastfeeding shirt. It said, I make milk. What's your superpower? I just loved that because I did feel much stronger as a woman in my identity after that. I definitely felt like I gave birth and I nursed. I ended up actually nursing for five years. She chose to end on her fifth birthday. So we nursed for five years and it was beautiful. And I didn't always love it. She nursed a lot for the first 
you know, two years or so through all the teething and developmental challenges. And we moved cross country and we traveled to the UK multiple times. Her uncle with Downs actually passed. I think we went to the UK five times within her first two years because it was cheaper (laughs) for her when she was under two. She loved to nurse and we could nurse anywhere at any time. I had a sling that I used or I, you know, just cover with my scarf. I got very comfortable nursing in public, but it was just magic. Nursing was magic. It was very good for her and it was very good for me, even though I didn't love it. And I was tired Mm -hmm. Uh, and I was tired of it at the end. I was like, okay, I think that's long enough. (laughs) Like, I don't know if she would have nursed till six or seven if I hadn't made her stop, but I thought five years was a very good long time for like immunity and, you know, for health reasons, for bonding reasons. She was a very well-adjusted, very, very smart, very inquisitive, high vocabulary child. And I credit breastfeeding for some of that. I really do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) do. (laughs) Nice. (sighs) Steve, is there anything you'd like to share about becoming a father? You know, as Sarah was sharing, it's really, they call it matrescence for mothers that there's this birth of a mother and birth of a father when you're giving birth the first time. And it's a huge transition psychologically, emotionally. And so much of the time we feel ill-prepared for that. We just like, nobody told us how radical it is for us. It's not just the birth of a baby. So I was just wondering, Steve, if there were any things to note about that transition for you. Oh, that feels like more of a blur. I definitely had my own you know, my own emotional attachment to both of them grow. Kind of pride in Sarah and creating it. But also, you know, my own sense of uh, belonging then. You know, we weren't just a couple anymore. We were this little threesome. And being aware of having to nurture and help this little thing grow. So that was, that was neat. Practically, you know, that idea where we got to the point, should I say, in the first week or so, I was waking up with Sarah in the middle of the night when Molly was crying, and I wanted to help. I wanted to fix it. I wanted Sarah to go back to sleep. And Sarah eventually snapped and was like, no, you sleep. I'll do Molly. I'll rest later. So that was kind of hard to get used to, the idea that I couldn't help. But then also realizing that listening to Sarah and doing what she wants was the best thing I could do. So quite often during the day, you know, Sarah would be taking little naps and I would be with Molly alone, just doing whatever she needed. And I think that's the best thing most dads can probably do is just listen to mom and do whatever she wants. <laughs> which, you know, sets you up for the next 20 years of your life. But <laughs> also with breastfeeding, you know, I wanted to be involved. So we started trying to store milk and so I could nurse her with a bottle. And uh, for many attempts, she wouldn't take it. She would scream and spit it out. And so I started tasting it and it was just never good. It was sour. It was spoiled. And we read somewhere that sometimes like certain fat consistency or whatever in the milk, mm-hmm. it, we never got it tested, but we're just assuming Sarah's milk wouldn't store in bottles. So mm. that was now that became a, a non-option. Wow. 
Uh, so I wasn't able to pump. And then I tried however many times, a dozen or so. And something about lipids, like some women or whatever, it's like, yeah. and I guess you can boil it and then freeze it. And it just felt like too much work. It was like, mm-hmm. we'll just nurse from the source. Like I hated pumping anyway. And I didn't because I think I had 12 weeks of maternity leave. It was a very generous, very like privileged mm. amount of maternity leave. And then when I went back, I was able to take Molly with me or work at home. It was the summer. So, you know, at NYU, it was like a slower period for education. Like I wasn't, I didn't have to go to my preschools in the Bronx and Brooklyn because it was a little more like summer camp in the summer. And my boss again was very, very supportive and generous. And then we were moving to Chicago. So we were packing and when we moved, I didn't have a job at first. So I basically took off. I I became a consultant. So I started working part-time so I could nurse and then leave the house for, you know, two or three hours and then come home and nurse again. And, and I was able to do some work from home, some, you know, curriculum writing and just kind of piecing together. I was a grant reviewer for like federal, you know, education grants. So I could work at home while she was sleeping and and then nurse, you know, before and after nap. And yeah, but back to Steve for a minute, he was so good with her. Like, I remember, I feel like it was like the second day, maybe he like gave her a tour of our apartment. I just remember hearing him being like, and this is the office where mommy was writing her dissertation. And this is the bathroom. And this is the kitchen where we make food. I was like, what is he doing? Like, he's talking to her like she's like, she could understand language, but it was so sweet. It was so sweet. And I had finished my dissertation before she was born, but I hadn't defended yet. I think I defended when she was like six weeks old or something. That was crazy. What? I had, to, I had just had some small revisions to make before it was finished, finished, and I could graduate. So I remember him taking her on long walks so I could be alone. Because if, if we were in the same apartment, she wanted to be nursing, basically. Like she wanted to be touching me, attached to me. So the best times were when he would take her out in the baby Bjorn or the sling and then the ergo, right? Is that what they were all called? It was a long time ago. We've got lots of great pictures of by the water in Bay Ridge. And yeah, Steve would take her out. And that's when he noticed the milk was sour because he would take a bottle and then he it just was, it didn't work. So yeah, we were very fortunate on the nursing from the source, not having to pump and store and, and boil and all that stuff. I'm glad you guys were able to identify what the issue was too, yeah. rather than, you know, continuing to try to offer the bottle and it just not working. I did want to ask, do you remember, did your insurance cover your home birth? It did. And it covered it so well. <laughs> so we didn't really know ahead of time. I remember Kristen saying something like, you know, this is the cost. I, I want to say it was like five grand. I don't remember exactly. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of like, this is what I'm going to submit for. And if your insurance doesn't cover that, then you'll have to cover the balance. And it was kind of like, okay. Like I was so opposed to a hospital birth for myself. I was like, you'd have to pay me to give birth. So <laughs> Like I was just like, I'll pay. And then my insurance covered a hundred percent of what she billed for. We were very fortunate. We were very, very, very fortunate. I think she might 
at least back then she had the same biller as my home birth midwife and that biller was just gifted in getting insurance to cover things miraculously. But it is a little bit like you're holding your breath, like, Oh, is this going to work or not? And my midwife just said, stay out of it. Don't even try to get involved. (laughs) Just let her do her magic. And yeah, same for us. We were so, so grateful that it was covered. So just for listeners to know that your insurance may or may not cover part or all of a home birth, but it's worth investigating. Home births in general cost way less than hospital births. So just good to know. Thank you. Well, so are there any other things that you wanted to share as we start to wrap things up that you haven't gotten to share yet? Yeah, I I was thinking we were talking earlier. I loved the film, The Business of Being Born. I would highly recommend that to all expecting parents. It was phenomenal. And I loved that it was New York. And I loved that they interviewed doctors from NYU hospital and they were like, so how many natural births have you seen? And they all looked at each other and they were all like zero. And I, I, my brain just exploded. Right. Mine did too. And I saw it in that second pregnancy. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, no way you've never seen a natural birth. You've you've never attended a natural birth. And all you want to do is give everybody Pitocin. Like no way, no way. I trust my body is meant to do this. I don't want all this intervention and pressure to make decisions when I'm not feeling well. No, I highly, highly recommend the business of being born. I really recommend that baby catcher book, which is less like well-known than, and it's not all home births. She's a hospital midwife at first. She's a nurse and it starts in the hospital. And then she goes into a home practice. And some of them are transfers to hospitals and some of them might even be hospital births. I don't remember hundred percent, but it's very, very, very good. It's not all just like pro home birth. It's just birth in general, but it's a beautiful book. I want to read that now. And I'm going to link to that and any resources you've mentioned today. I'll be sure to link to those in the show notes. Okay. I have one for dads. What's that? The book by a children's book author called, the book is called Crawling. And his name is Elijah Cooper. And it's basically his first year of being a father. He's a freelance illustrator, children's book author. So he works from home and lives in San Francisco. So it's very nice. But he's like the stay-at-home dad for the first year. So just for me, it was just like, I think the, for most of the book is like dealing with having a newborn and what's it like and how does it affect his day. And so you get that nice feeling of being a dad, I guess, and, and being in your family. And it's all very happy. And then right at the end, you know, she's like nine months old and breaks her arm or something. So this is sudden, like, little tragedy, which, you know, that kind of broke my heart when it happened because all of a sudden there's this kind of emotional thing at the end and you, you kind of realize, what well, it's going to, maybe that's going to happen to me. What's that going to feel like when my kid gets hurt? And then a few years later, he wrote the sequel where one of his kids actually has cancer, which is another, another level altogether. That first one, just as an introduction, is nice. I'm so excited you are introducing me to books that I have not heard of. And so I'm going to look that one up as well. Thank you for sharing that. And I imagine, Steve, as an artist and stay-at-home dad, that helped you just connect to that author on those specific levels. I want to give Steve a shout out. He is an amazing artist. I've seen some of his drawings and I'm like, oh my gosh, I never knew when you lived here how gifted you are in that way. So I've been thankful to see that. Continue sharing your art. <laughs> yeah, he's painted a lot of amazing portraits. 
Yeah, he's awesome. I also thought of a book that I can't think of exactly the title, something like Nursing Mother, Working Mother or something that helped me a lot in terms of, again, it's short vignettes by different women who had different professions around pumping and just like the commitment because I was a working mom, even though I was a part-time working mom, I was a consultant for her first five years of life, but I was pretty much the sole wage earner. So even though I was a consultant, all of the family financial pressures were on me. So I was trying to juggle my commitment to nursing and not giving up. And that book was really helpful. And La Leche League, we moved to Chicago and I started going to La Leche League meetings too. But that book was really helpful if you're a nursing mom in terms of advocating for your rights of like a place to pump and breaks and that kind of thing. It's That book really, really helped me. Yeah, obviously we like to read. So I'm a literacy specialist, as I mentioned, I tutor kids. And the other advice I'd give to new parents would be in terms of your children's book collection, if you're going to start buying or getting books from the library, really important to get books with diverse characters. So we're white, we have European ancestry. And from day one, we had diverse books of you know, illustrations and photographs of kids around the world with different skin color and hair texture and facial features and the music that you listen to. Kudamayo CD series has these like world music from all, you know, all different yeah, countries. I love that series. That stuff really matters much younger than most people realize. So a lot of anti-bias, anti-racism work starts with people in middle school and high school when they think that kids are ready. And it's actually so important in early childhood. And I'm talking like infant, toddler, pre-preschool, pre, I mean, obviously some kids go to early childhood centers in terms of childcare needs, but the books that teachers read and parents read is so critical. There's an amazing book. I think it's out of print, but you can still get it called Two Eyes, a Nose, and a Mouth. Molly was obsessed. So it's photography. It's probably got 150 different pictures, uh, just like headshots with a black background. It's so striking. And it's a poem, you know, so it rhymes and it, it was out by Scholastic. But anyway, I really recommend Two Eyes, a Nose, and a Mouth. And there's a lot of books that have you know, LGBTQ families in them just to like normalize the diversity, different religious backgrounds, people, you know, with Muslim who are wearing the hijab, like it's really important to get those images in front of babies and toddlers. Yeah. I, I can't remember the exact article that I read at some point there about research that's been done on how early our biases start So that really resonates. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, there's definitely research with three-year-olds for sure. And infants notice. So six-month-olds can notice skin color. That idea of kids being colorblind is totally false. Mm -hmm. Um, They don't have bias at six months, but they do recognize if they have caregivers, you know, in the home, out of the home, relatives. They notice the different amounts of melanin in people's skin. And it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's something to celebrate. And Mm -hmm. there's so many people really uncomfortable with talking about it. And it's really important for our children that we get more comfortable talking about it, Mm -hmm. especially people with European ancestry tend to be least comfortable talking about it. And whoever is listening, I hope you feel proud of your heritage and celebrate everyone else's heritage. And the diversity in the world is a beautiful thing, including people who are really sensitive like myself. So I want to say happy birthday to Molly because 13 years is a big deal. And it was one of the happiest days of my life for sure. Even though I struggled with 
my grief. It was amazing to become a mom and to be growing with her as a mom over these past 13 years has been awesome. It's awesome. Oh no, I was giving you your moment. <laughs> Do you want to say anything? <laughs> Uh, to Mo- happy birthday, Molly, for me too. <laughs> and um, I want to say happy birthday, Molly. I'm sure that our girls will connect on her birthday and then on a couple of weeks before on Ella's birthday as well. <laughs> so we celebrate your life, Molly. We love you very much. And it's been so beautiful to hear how you came into the world. So thank you so much, Sarah and Steve. This has been a treasured time. I'm really grateful you took the time. Thank you for having us. Thanks everyone. Whoever's listening, thank you for listening to our story. I hope you, Molly, as well as the listeners, enjoyed hearing this wonderful birth story. I wanted to take a few minutes to briefly touch on a few topics that came up in today's story. Slowing down at the end of pregnancy, the vernix, catching your own baby, water birth, and grief. Sarah shared how intentional she was in slowing down at the end of pregnancy, how she was working and traveling less and less. I know it's not an option for everyone, but if you can cut back on your hours or commute less as you're getting to around 36 or 37 weeks, it's a great idea because it could really help your body more easily go into labor. And it's a great time to do some self-care, reflection, introspection. Sarah mentioned leaving the vernix on Molly's skin. Vernix is a creamy or kind of waxy substance that's on a newborn's skin that I like to describe as baby's perfect first skin protectant and moisturizer. You'll see more of it the earlier a baby's born and less of it the later they're born. It protects the baby's skin while in the womb, and once baby's born, it helps a newborn to better regulate their own temperature by keeping the body heat in. It has antimicrobial and healing properties. It helps the scent of amniotic fluid to linger on baby's hands, which has been found to be instrumental in getting breastfeeding off to a good start, too. Some also think that perhaps not scrubbing it off could perhaps minimize some of the many skin reactions newborns have in this huge transition from the aquatic environment of the womb to the dry world. Yet it's standard in most hospitals to do what's called the delayed sponge bath anywhere from two hours after birth here in our local hospitals to 48 hours after birth. If you prefer to leave the vernix on, but you're giving birth in a hospital, you could request in advance to opt out of the standard delayed bath. In birthing centers and home births, it's usually standard to not bathe the baby with the thinking that the vernix is there for a reason. I just wanted to mention that catching your own baby is usually only something that's an option in birthing centers or home births. However, if it interests you, no matter where you're giving birth, it's worth asking your care provider about the possibility. There will be the occasional care provider in a hospital setting who might allow you to do it with them, but usually the hospital will require them to give you or your partner medical gloves. And most hospitals won't allow a parent to be the sole person hands-on as baby's being born. If you're interested in water birth, you just need to check to see if this mode of birth is an option in your area. This is another thing that more commonly is an option in home births and birthing centers, but in some parts of the country, there may be hospitals that also allow it. A great person to help you with these kinds of questions is a local doula or childbirth educator. 
Just wanted to mention that the home birth midwife praised in this episode, Kristen Leonard, is currently taking a sabbatical for 2021. However, for any listeners who listen to this episode later and have a due date beyond then, I've linked to her website in the show notes for this episode, episode 64, over at birthmattersshow.com. Finally, I wanted to say a few words on grief because this was such a strong theme in today's story. It's important to give yourself permission to grieve in pregnancy and in postpartum, whether that's permission to simply go there mentally by processing verbally with a loved one or a therapist, or any other way that you find to be helpful. Especially if you've lost a parent prior to becoming a parent, as Sarah did in today's story, but not limited to that. Give yourself space to grieve anything you need to. In these pandemic times, perhaps you need to grieve the loss of what you thought this time in your life would look like. You don't need to feel guilty about it. You don't need to repress it. It's more important to allow yourself to have the space to process that grief so that eventually, with time, you can move into this new season in your life more fully committed, more fully present for yourself and your family. It does not diminish the joy that is this new little human being you just met or you're about to meet. Here's the thought I'd like you to ponder this week. You can carry joy and grief in your heart at the same time. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday.